Titus is a Greek or Gentile pastor. He was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Paul went to the island of Crete. It's the largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. And so if you could picture the Mediterranean Sea right here, you have Italy looking like the boot. You have North Africa and Egypt right here. And then over here you have Jerusalem. Okay? So there's the Mediterranean. And right here on the bottom, right above North Africa, you have Crete, this big island. It's now uh, a resort destination. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, you would want to go there on vacation. But in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, uh, it was loaded with, as Epimenides said, and Paul quotes, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Okay? That was the culture of Crete. Evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons. All right, so this is the, the context that Titus is plunged into to take over the churches that Paul has planted. And so here, here, this is the beautiful thing about our situation here. Titus was to put in order house churches, just like this. And so a, a normal gathering of the church in Crete that Titus was to put in order would have looked just like this. All right, I assume it would have been a lot warmer <laughs> because uh, we like the air conditioning. But, you know, I would imagine there would have been pets there, I don't know if they had coffee in Crete at that time, but surely they would have had refreshments and there would be prayer and singing. And so it would feel and look a lot like this, this right here. And false teachers had crept into these house churches that Paul had planted. And now he leaves Titus on the island of Crete to establish leaders or to appoint elders in every church. To left, I'm sorry, Paul left that unfinished, but he left it to Titus. And so this letter called Titus, written to Titus by the Apostle Paul, is in a sense giving Titus apostolic authority to rule, if you will, and govern the churches in Crete. Now, our last message two weeks ago was about false teaching. And that's really, I think, what sparked this letter from Paul to Titus. Because in this context, in that day, there was a heresy, that just means a false teaching, that was invading all of the new churches in the first century, and it was called um, Judaizers, Judaizing. And so what it was, was you had Jesus as the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament and the prophets and the Psalms, but you also need to have all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the dietary laws of the Old Testament, the calendar laws of the Old Testament, and you need those plus Jesus, then God will receive you. We know the message of the New Testament is, and really the message of the Old Testament as well, you just have to look a little harder, is that no, we are only acceptable and received by God, not by anything we do or have done, but only by the person and work of Jesus in our place as a substitute. That's it. Okay? The reformers would have said it like this. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, how do we know that? Because the Bible alone teaches that, and it's all for God's glory alone. Okay? And so Paul says, no, Titus, you combat this false teaching of Jesus plus, and you tell them it's Jesus 
alone for salvation. Okay? And so that was our message two weeks ago. The last verse in chapter 1 was about Titus rebuking and keeping the faith in order. And now, I'm sorry, the false teachers not doing that, not keeping the faith in order. And he starts out in verse 1, but as for you. Okay, so now into our text. But as for you. He's saying, but you in contrast to the false teachers. You, Titus, here's what you are to do. You are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 1. Now, sound means healthy. And and this little helpful note in the ESV, you could see, you could translate that as healthy. But as for you, Titus, contrasting you to the false teachers, you teach what accords with healthy doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. You teach what is healthy, Titus. And, and here's, a, here's, a, here's a gift for you guys. False teaching is harmful. It's not healthy. It's like a disease. It will not maybe harm your physical body, but it will harm your soul. And listen, what does it, gain, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? False teaching inevitably will corrupt you. It has to. It's not healthy. It's like a disease, and it will spread all through your thinking, and it will come and manifest in your living now the same or opposite is true for healthy teaching healthy teaching will also invade your soul and you will then begin to live out health teaching is never an end in itself right now i love to teach the bible i love to study the bible i love to listen to sermons and i get excited when i go to the bookstore and i have to show uh the ninth fruit of the holy spirit which is self-control Otherwise, I'd be just sliding the credit card with a massive you know, stack of books. Does anyone share my pain? Anyone? Two? Okay, so the teacher's in the room. <laughs> and, and by the way, Jackie is leading a Bible study. You're not? Okay, that's on pause. Jackie's a teacher. Eddie's a teacher. Myself's a teacher. We have, uh, it's not like we go to the bar and we have to show restraint by drinking one or two drinks. We have to go to the bookstore and show restraint by buying one or two books. Otherwise, we're going to be in massive amount of debt, and the 20% interest, the book that would have cost 20 is, again, five years going to cost 50. Right? So we have to, this is, this is me, okay? So I go to the bookstore, I pick out about 10 books, and I'm like, I can only get two of these. <laughs> and I have to, like, painfully cut off which books are not profitable for the time being. And then I go in the very back and all the sale items, and I hide the ones right? so no one else can find them. And I'll find them a year later when I have some money. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Kind of. Um, So he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what is sound doctrine? The only grounds that we have for sound teaching is the Bible. Right? Because it's it's an objective standard or rule, which is why they call it the canon, the canon of Scripture. Okay? It's objective. It's outside of ourselves. How many of you have been in conversations with people and they're like, well, I think this and I think this and, well, I feel it should be this way. And it's like, everyone's got a thousand different perspectives and opinions, but the question is, what makes your opinion any better than my opinion or the next guy's opinion or... If we're not able to stand on something outside of ourselves, or better yet, stand under something outside of ourselves, 
Who's the authority? We are. If we get to pick and choose what we believe and don't believe, then we're the authority. And you see, that, that's, that's us born into the world. We love to be our own authority. The ultimate authority in the world is God, is he not? And when we say, I'm in charge, I will take authority, what we're really saying is, I want to be God. That's what we're saying. But when we say, no, I'll submit to you, God, which is where you want to be, that's the most healthiest place you could be. I'm telling you, it may not feel it, it and especially in the moment, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's the best place to be. Sometimes it feels like it's the worst place to be. But that's because we're fallen. That's because we're sinful. We're, We're looking, seeing, thinking, perceiving through a grid that's all filled up with gunk and stained and and listen, the Christian life, this is the Christian life. Your grid slowly gets cleaned out. Think of it like a screen. And the screen, for all these years you've not been a Christian, has been just filtering all this garbage and crap. And then as you become a Christian, the screen starts to get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. And all of a sudden, as you grow and grow and grow, you can see more and more and more clearly. And the filter becomes cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. It's because you have a clearer and clearer and clearer understanding of what God has revealed to us in His Word. So all that being said, he's saying, Titus, you teach what the Scripture teaches. Not your own ideas, not your own thoughts. What the Scripture teaches, that's what you are to teach. And the beautiful thing about the Scriptures is, it's one big story in 66 books all about God the Redeemer. He's saving, he's reconciling, he's restoring. That's the big story. And all these little books, the 66 of them, fit into this wider, bigger story of God redeeming. He's coming to redeem not only people, but the environment, our solar system, and the universe. Remade, and he physically will be ruling and reigning with us on a remade earth. I was just telling uh, Megan the other day, I can't wait to swim with the dolphins and the sharks. Okay. How many of you saw the, the video a few weeks ago about the shark attacking the guy? It was, well, it, that probably happened. Uh, there's shark attacks all, all over the place this year for some reason. I'm going to the beach in like three days. <laughs> so, so you saw it, right? So the, the guy's hanging out on his surfboard and this shark just comes out of the water and grabs the end of his surfboard and he just starts thrashing and kicking. And You've seen that, right? Huh? He punched it, kicked it. Yeah, he was fighting it. Listen, new heavens, new earth. Imagine you just grabbing onto a shark like it's a dolphin and it diving underwater and you're just having a good old time with it. And if you don't think that's what the, the picture of the scriptures is, it says that the child will stick its hand in the viper's hole and not be harmed. The lion and the ox will eat grass together. I mean, we're talking total harmony in the animal kingdom, back to the garden, but yet the garden is the entire universe. Harmony, shalom. I can't wait. I can't wait. The more I learn and grow and see what is to come, the more I can't stand it here. Someone um, showed me the other day a, a picture. It was a YouTube clip 
of, uh, since I'm going to Disney World, right? He, he shows me this picture of uh, two women in line at Epcot Center, and this big fight broke out in the line at Epcot. And, and he, you know, people like that kind of stuff, right? They like brawl. I mean, remember high school? Fight, and, and all of a sudden, there's a huge circle of people, and it's exciting. And, it's, and nowadays, everyone pulls out their phone because they want to catch a piece of the action for Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, right? But, but you know what happened to me in my heart? And I didn't plan for this. It just happened. I said to the guy, you know what? Honestly, this is exactly what I said to him. I said, I said you know what? Thank God that one day, either God's going to change everyone's heart so they won't want to fight again, or all the people who do want to keep fighting are going to be in hell. And, and that's sad, but it's true, and I can't wait. Can't you wait? I'm, can you imagine no more fighting? No more contention. I can't wait. So we're, we're still in verse 1. Healthy teaching produces healthy living. So the first instruction is, okay, Titus, teach the older men. Now, older men, this phrase is used by Paul in Philemon, which is a, a book later in the New Testament. It's a one-chapter book. And in verse 9, he says, I am Paul the aged, <laughs> or Paul an old man. Same word. And so this means old men. So most scholars think, okay, 50 and, and above. 50 and above. These are the older men. This is the category to which he's speaking. And he says, teach them that they are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Verse 2. Now, sober-minded means this. It means restrained in desires. How many of you know older men who are not restrained in their desires, but whatever their desire is, they just go after it without even thinking, without restraint, impulsive, just on it? Is that ever healthy? Does that ever cause destruction to families and to uh, other people or just leave in their wake a whole bunch of hurt and mess? And Paul says, no, teach them to be sober-minded, to be sober-minded, to, to have their desires in control. Now, this, this does probably hint to drinking, okay? And, and you may not have realized this, but the Bible never condemns drinking alcohol. It doesn't. What it does condemn is drunkenness. And so Jesus, I mean, I find it amazing that his first miracle was changing six water pots of 30 gallons each into the best wine anyone has ever tasted in their life. The best wine that ever existed. What's six times 30? 180? 180 gallons of wine for the first miracle. And not just Wild Irish Rose or the box stuff. We're talking the best wine ever drunken. Drank. Drunken's not a good word. Ever drank, right? The, the master of the feast says, says, right, most guests, or most people hosting a party, they put out the good wine first. And then after the, the, the guests have had a little to drink, in other words, they're a little bit tipsy, then they bring out the cheap stuff. Because when you're half lit, you don't realize if it's good or bad. You're just like, fill me up another one. Right? And he's saying, you save the best till last. And I'll bet it was the best. 
Jesus brings the party to life. Most people think Jesus comes in and stamps out the party like a fire that's just smoldering. And, and here's Jesus. We're about holiness here. No fun. No, Jesus brings the party back to life. Your view of Jesus is too small, is what I'm trying to say. If you think Jesus comes into your life to squash your joy and happiness, no, he comes in and says, your joy and happiness is far too small. I'm here to light it up. So let's light it up. And the way you light it up is not by, you know, Colorado and Seattle now legalizing marijuana and you get the best stuff in the coffee shop now like Starbucks. That's not how we light it up. Okay? We light it up by transforming the mind with good teaching and you live in the design that God designed life to work and all of a sudden the whole world opens up to you. And once you were blind and then now you see. Okay? How many of you could get John 9.25 tattooed across your forehead? All I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. I love it. Sober-minded. What else does he tell Titus to teach the older men? Be dignified. Dignified. It means reverence for God and moral earnestness affecting the outward. Like, this is, this is who you want your dad to be, man. This is who you want your brothers to be. This is who you want your husband to be. This is who you want your male friends to be. You want them to be sober-minded and dignified. You want these people, the dignified person, you would leave them alone with your young child. You would leave them in your house by yourself knowing that you have thousands of dollars stashed in the drawer without a lock on the, on the drawer. They're dignified. You're not even worried about it. It's not even a thought. I mean, these are safe, healthy men. How many not safe, healthy men do we know? I mean, turn on the news. And Paul's saying, listen, Titus, what you teach will affect how they live. You need to teach what is healthy to produce healthy men. And these older men are going to be seen by the younger men as a model of how they should live. Listen, you didn't realize this, maybe. Maybe you did. But we were made to follow examples. We were created for that. And so we will find someone to follow. We will find someone to quote-unquote idolize. American idols. We will find someone who we respect and love and we'll say, I want to be like them. I'm going to live like them. And Paul's saying, Titus, teach the older men to be sober-minded and dignified so the young guys can look at them and say, I want to be like them. I want to be that old guy. What's next? Before I move on to self-controlled, I want to talk very quickly. This also has, has an inspiring element to it. Okay, It means to be reverenced, to be respected, and to hold in awe. So if you are dignified, that means other people, in a sense, hold you in awe. Now, now in our culture, we hold in awe the people with a ton of cash and possessions. So if Jay-Z walked in the room with his massive platinum medallion chain and his you know, $6 million watch, and he got out of his... Bentley, we'd be like, oh 
I mean, we would, we would hold him in awe. We'd be like, his wrist is worth more than my life. Because <laughs> in our culture, we idolize people with possessions. The more possessions you have, the more important you are. And, and Paul's saying, no, no. These men who you should hold in awe should be men who are sober-minded and dignified. Forget what they have. Who are they? What's their character like? How do they treat people? Will they self-sacrifice for others? Or are they using others to serve themselves? I, I'm, a, I'm a, again, a Bible teacher, and so my heroes at this point, like I confess, my heroes used to be like rappers. I mean, I had rappers were my heroes. And like the Wu-Tang, I, I remember, here's, a, here's an example of modeling. I didn't even know it was happening when it was happening. The RZA was a rapper from the Wu-Tang Clan, and he, he said something like this. He said, 50 straight push-ups will keep your body in perfect shape. So guess what I started to do every day? 50 push-ups. RZA said it's going to work. I'm doing it. I swear, that's, that's exactly what happened. So-and-so said, you get this amount of money, and you'll get this amount of respect, and then you'll get the girls. Any movies coming to mind? Scarface. Tony Montana, no, all right. Those were my heroes. I literally had a picture of Al Pacino as Tony Montana on the inside of my art box when I was in high school. Like, so people would look at my art box. They'd be like, dude, why is, why is Al Pacino, like, pasted onto your art? He was my hero. Well, I was selling drugs at the time, right? And so I would watch Scarface, and I'd be like, I can't wait to get to that level. Yet if I'd have just let the movie play the whole way through, he ends up dead in his own fountain, all bloody. and <laughs> Just forget about that scene. I want the scene where he's pulling in all the bags of money into the bank and everybody's loving and respecting him. It's a, it's a false... But we were made that way. We were made to imitate. You can't help it. Who's your hero? You don't have to say it. Who's your hero? Who are you looking at and saying, I want to be like them? So for me now, my heroes are, are Bible teachers, theologians, writers of books. And <laughs> there's, there's about five guys who I super highly respect. Um, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Ray Ortland Jr., and Tim Keller. And I'll listen to these guys sometimes. They're all in their 60s and 70s, and I'll be like, I wish they were my grandfather. <laughs> I swear to you, I say that. I'm like, man, if only Tim Keller was my grandfather, and I had his number, and I could just call him up. Because in a sense, I hold him in awe. If I could just have a conversation with this guy, if I could sit down and have coffee with Tim Keller. And, and, and Paul saying to Titus, teach these men to be the kind of men who younger men will look at and say, I wish that was my grandfather. Or if they're my age, I wish that was my dad. Don't you want to be that, guys? And there's only two of you. My brothers. <laughs> Don't you want to be that guy? I do. I want to be that guy. And, and, and here we have biblical warrant to be those guys. Isn't that good? All right. Self-controlled, and I'm going to go faster as time goes on. I know you're looking at the clock like, dag, he's taking 20 minutes on each point. We're going to start plowing through this very quickly. Sober-minded, 
dignified, self-controlled. Self-controlled is the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and here's what it means. It means curbing the desires and impulses. You're sane in your desires that are not fitting. And you're moderate as to the passions. You like that? Sane as to your desires. How many of you know people are insane in their desires? And whatever their desire are, it doesn't matter if I have to kill to get what I want. My desires and passions are out of control such that I will take from you in order to fulfill my desires and passions. That is an out of control passion if I ever saw one or heard of one. But how many people do you know like that? Okay. Again, healthy teaching creates by the power of the Holy Spirit healthy living. Passions are under control. So what this means is you can have, men, a passionate desire for something and you can curb that. You can curb that because by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're in control of your passions. They're not in control of you. And that's, that's the key. When you watch the news or you look at these Facebook clips or you see the YouTube clips, what you're seeing is men who are controlled by their passions. They're not in control of their passions. That's the difference. And in and of ourselves, we don't have control of our passions. We only get control of our passions or self-control by the power of God himself in the third person, the Holy Spirit. Remember Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Self-control. Funny story, real quick. We were, uh, because Matt mentioned it, we were in one of our small groups. We call them gospel-centered communities. They meet weekly. Heather was there. She's smiling. And we were sitting around a table. There was probably 10, maybe 15 of us. And, and, and here's Sarah Peters. Here's Matt, who's in the kitchen. And here's a girl named Kristen, who's also a part of the church. And they were talking about self-control. And, and Matt said something to Sarah. And, and Sarah t- said something about self-control. And Matt's like, self-control is overrated. And you should have saw Kristen's face. She went like this. And she was like, it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And she just rebuked him right in front of everybody. <laughs> Everyone busted out laughing. It was a friendly rebuke. It was awesome. Wasn't it awesome, Matt? It was awesome. That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It was like, all right. So next, these men are to be sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. That's the end of verse 1 here. And and what this means is this. Healthy faith is the faith as the faith itself, the Christian walk. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. It's the body of Christian truth, the faith. But it also, I think, points to your trust in God, which is what faith is. Your trust in God and His promises. Sound in faith. Again, healthy in faith. Now, now we could spend the rest of the time talking about unhealthy faith, couldn't we? Especially in the category of false teaching. Because I used to believe that we should have faith in our faith. What do you mean? You trust that your trust is so strong that what you trust in, and because it's at such a high level, whatever you're trusting for will happen for you. Like it's a power. Faith in faith, rather than faith in God or faith in God's promises. It's faith that I believe enough, and if I ask and believe enough that I ask, I'll get what I want. That's pretty prevalent. You ever heard that? I heard it. I used to believe it. Faith in faith. 
So the object of your faith is your faith. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's not good. That's not healthy. <laughs> but that's prevalent. Sound in faith or healthy in faith, healthy in love. Love's the greatest commandment, guys. I mean, it's our mission as a church. When someone says, what's, what's the mission of Eternal City Church? It's the great commandment worked into a mission statement. It's to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in His image. That's what we're about as a church. We are seeking for you, we want to multiply passionate love for Jesus and those made in His image. That would be everyone. Passionate love for Jesus, passionate love for people. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Healthy love. Healthy love, listen, is not self-love. It's love that moves outside of the self, and its object is something else than self. It's God and others. That's the environment with which, in which you'll flourish. The reason you're so upset, so depressed, so down, so beat on is probably because the love has curved inward on self and it's not going out towards God and others, which is exactly what you were made for. That's what you were made for. And so if I used a a car tire as a cereal bowl, I'm going to be a little frustrated because that's not what it was made for. I'm going to have a hard time getting that on the table itself for breakfast. And then it's all awkward because i got a scoop like this. and It's made to be rode on with air in it on your car. And listen, you were made not to curve in on yourself, but to move out in love towards God and people. And if that's not happening, we don't even have to ask what's wrong. That's what's wrong. That's what's wrong. All right, let's keep moving. Healthy in faith, healthy in love. Next, steadfastness. Steadfastness is endurance. It's not giving up. How many of you are tempted to give up all the time? I'm just, I'm about done. I'm about to give in. I'm about to give up. I'm about to head out. I see the exit sign and I'm about to take it. Healthy men are steadfast. They stick in there, especially when it's hard. They don't run away. They don't run away. And unfortunately, in our culture, men run away all the time. And I can see why. It's not easy. It's not easy, man. Okay, I'm going to read you something from B.B. Warfield. B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, is, a, is a great theologian. Our model here of old men, obviously, is Jesus. Jesus was all these things. But listen to the way B.B. Warfield puts it. You ready? Listen. This is, ladies, if you don't have a man, this is who you want. The description of the man I'm about to read. Brothers, this is who we want to be. You ready? Jesus said, I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal the the divine purpose to save, that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsoiled blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness. He made no account of himself. If this is to be our example, what limit can we set on our self-sacrifice? 
Let us remember that we are no longer our own, but Christ's, bought with the price of his precious blood, and are henceforth to live, not for ourselves, but for him, for him and his creatures, serving him in serving them. He, Christ, was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all on the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men fail, there we will be to uplift. Whenever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means the many-sidedness of spirit. Multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means rich, listen to this, richness of development. You ready? This is, this is the gold right here. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Not in the Hindu sense, but because your life is so wrapped up in others, you've lived a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that theirs has become ours. Isn't that Jesus? Like, rather than standing back with indifference and saying, Man, you, you got a mess on your hands there, bro. He says, I'll step into your mess. Not only will I step into your mess, but I'll take your mess upon myself. I'll take your defilement upon myself. I'll take your failure upon myself. And then I'll give you my unfailure, order, cleanness, grace, forgiveness. I'll, I'll trade my life for yours. I'll substitute myself for you. That's what Jesus did. And listen, now that we are in that place of substitution... Jesus took our place in life and death and burial and resurrection. Now we could do the same for others. Not in our own strength. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And so by depending on him, we enter into other people's lives hard as it is and live a thousand lives. You ready, Eddie? You ready? All right. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to, to much wine. All right, now I'm going to start to move fast. Because he has a lot more to say to the ladies than the men. I don't know why. Because surely men are far more messed up than women. I mean, I know far too many women who got it together, and the men are like, all right. So I don't, I, maybe the Crete culture was different than ours. I don't know. I, I, here's, a, here's an illustration of this. I, we were getting uh, Permani Brothers down in Oakland on Forbes uh, about two or three days ago, working at Pitt. And there's a 21-year-old waitress, and we were talking to her with her, having a conversation. And she said to us, I don't know how we got on this, but she said, I only date men who are 27 and above. I'm like, why? What, what? Well, they have a job. They got their stuff together. And, and so what does that say, in her mind at least, about all those under 27? 
They don't got it together. And, and in my experience, that's mostly true. And um, so just so you get the flavor of house church here, I believe that Titus was interrupted by pets. <laughs> this is biblical right here. You ready? <laughs> yep. <laughs> See, next week at the pavilion, no Jada, no Yukon. That's going to be awesome. Right? So please come. All right. So ladies. <clears throat> now, the older women does, I think, imply the same thing as the older men. And so he's not talking to young ladies. We know that because the older women are to train the younger women. And so we're talking about ladies above 50 who are to be this example like the older men to the younger women and to show them how to live healthy lives. Okay? And so Paul's saying, Titus, here's what you need to teach the older ladies. You guys ready? This obviously has implications for the younger ladies. It's obvious, right? Because if they're supposed to teach the younger women, this is what you're supposed to be, young ladies. They are to be reverent in behavior. This means holy outward living, showing the inward transformed person. What we never want to do, ladies, is put a show on the outside that hides who you are on the inside. Never. I would far more recommend you be honest about who you are on the inside and say, I need to change. I know it. That's why I have Jesus and I'm asking him every day to change me. I'd rather you be that. And I know God would rather you be that than someone who pretends to have it all together in front of everybody. Because God's looking for real. He's not looking for hypocrisy. He's not looking for hypocrites. He's not looking for people who look like they're all shiny and bright and got it together, and then you get into that person's closet and it's a mess. Okay? Rather, why not say, I'm a mess. That's who Jesus came for. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, but the sick. I came for people who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And so, ladies, if, if we're going to be real, which is what I think God wants more than anything else, be real with Him and be real with each other. Don't pretend. Like, why pretend? You're never going to get better if you're pretending. You always got to cover it up. Right? So, teach the older women to be reverent in behavior. So, as you're transformed on the inside, it will come out. It can't help it. You can't help it. Teach them to be reverent in behavior. Teach them to not be slanderers. Okay, now this one, I think, is the biggest sin women struggle with. Do you know what the Greek word for slander is? Diabolos. Do you know what that also translates? Devil. <laughs> Teach them not to be devils. That's what he's saying. But, but you, know what it, you know what devil means or diabolos means? It means slander. It means gossip. Let's, let's hear it. Is gossip not a huge temptation for women? Massive temptation. I know one woman who said to me, I have a hard time hanging out with women because I'm so tempted to enter into the gossip. It's like every time I get around women, it's a gossip festival, and I don't even want to be in that environment because I'm going to sin. I know I will. And so to avoid the sin, I'll just avoid the environment. Wow. That's sad. 
And with Facebook and social media now, this is even harder for women. Because let someone say something you don't agree with online. And let's just blow it up publicly, and then let's get together and form a coalition privately. Am I right? Me against you, and let me get my team against you and your team. And, and it's all gossip. It's all devilish. Listen, it's demonic. So, so maybe we would stop gossiping, myself included, if we realized it's a tool of the devil. Maybe. Maybe if, maybe if that came to mind as soon as I was about to gossip or was in a... So, so if, if, if here's a circle of ladies gossiping. Thank you, Matt. What if you could imagine Satan right there in the circle, edging it on, making it worse, throwing gas on the fire? Maybe you'd be like, I'm not going to go in that circle. (laughs) Maybe you would walk away. Because that's the picture we're given here. The slanderer. Now, let's be careful, okay? That's all I'm saying. Ladies, please. I know it's a huge struggle. I know it's massive. And, and, and here's the difference. There is a di- here's how you can tell if you're gossiping or not. I've often had this conversation too. Well, how do I know if I'm gossiping? When you're talking to somebody about someone else, what's your intent? Is your intent to harm them by what you say or is your intent to help them by what you say? Help or hurt? Because if you're talking to somebody about someone else and your intent is to hurt that person, reputation or character or whatever, that's, that's gossip. But listen, if I go to someone else and have a conversation about someone else for their help, for their health, for their, that's not gossip. And, and I think it's a fine line. Because sometimes I've had to have conversations with ladies and they're like, is this gossip or not? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that is or not. But here's what I do know. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 that love covers a multitude of sins. And so if I love Jackie and Jackie gets something really wrong, I'm not rubbing my hands saying, ooh, I can't wait to tell so-and-so, or I'm out to you know, coffee with so-and-so, and I say, hey, did you hear about Jackie? No, rather, rather, if someone in the conversation says, hey, did you hear about Jackie? This is hard. This is almost impossible. Uh, if it's not good, I really don't want to hear it. I've seen this done one time, and believe it or not, it was by a non-Christian man. It's impact. It was when I was in my early teens. It impacted me so much. I can see it in my mind. I was in the kitchen of my friend's house. My friend was sitting to the left. His dad was at the kitchen. Not a Christian. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And he starts talking about one of the neighbors in the town. And the dad says, stop. The less I know about somebody, the better. And we shut up. And I thought, wow. And now looking back, I'm like, wow, what a way to stop gossip. In his mind, he didn't want to think about this person that way that they were going to talk about them. And so love, if I love you, I'm seeking to keep your reputation. I'm not, now listen, there's a difference between hiding a scandal. We're not talking about Jerry Sandusky here, okay? What we're talking about is in love, shielding the other person. Standing up for them. Isn't that what Jesus did for you? I mean, what, what, what the devil would say about you and how he would slander you was probably all true. And Jesus was like, no, 
I'm going to be their advocate. I'm going to be their defender. I'm standing in for them. Okay? And, and, and by grace, we can do that. We can do that. I remember one pastor, his name is Jeff Vanderstelt. He said um, there was one neighbor on their street, and, and they literally thought, this is what he said, they literally thought this guy would kill people and hide them in the basement. They thought he was some kind of crazy murderer. And they all began to talk about him one time. And Jeff, the pastor, said, stop. He's not here to defend himself. We're not going to talk about him. And, and the non-Christian neighbors looked at him and was like, what is, what is up with you? And, and Jeff said this, and it impacted me, I'm telling you. He said, I'll tell you what that other neighbor knows now. If they're being talked about by other neighbors, they can know for sure that I'll stick up for them and defend them if they're not there. Here's a little proverb I heard. It's not in the Bible, so don't go Google this and look for the proverb. But this is true. Those who talk to you about others will talk to others about you. No question. So if you meet someone who's always talking about everyone else, be assured you're being talked about as well when you're not around. Does that mean you stiff arm that person? No. No, because that's, that's retreating. That's not moving in in love. But if that's you, okay, slanderers, diabolos, gossips. I, I just think the thing we should remember is love covers a multitude of sin. Like if we love people, we're not going to be gossiping about them and we're going to stick up for them and defend them. Okay. What are they to do? They're not to be slaves of much wine. Again, it doesn't say, Titus, tell the older women not to drink alcohol. And so Paul and Titus were not Baptists, right? And if you were in the Baptist community at all, you know what I'm talking about, right? Alcohol is the devil. It's the Diablos. He says much wine. Drunkenness is always condemned. Drinking alcohol is never condemned in the Bible. Are there times where we give it up for the sake of someone else and loving them in that way? Of course. But it's never saying don't. I remember R.C. Sproul said, it's funny that in some pastoral circles, the, the requirements for a pastor means that they can't drink alcohol. That would mean that Jesus and none of the apostles could be elders in those churches. I was like, wow. He just barred Jesus and the apostles. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So not to be slaves to much wine, or you could say addicted to much wine. Okay? And, and if you're an older lady and you're just sitting around, it's easy to just start consuming the wine on a daily basis because wine does gladden the heart, okay? Now, the Crete culture is in contrast here, okay? He's saying that's your culture, slanderers, slaves to wine. Here's what you are to teach. This is the positive. Teach them what's good and so train the young women. Okay, older women are to teach the younger women with words and modeling. Words and modeling. So it's not just words. It's not just modeling. It's words and modeling. What are they to teach them? Well, the first thing is to love their husbands and children. Well, you might say, well, isn't that natural? 
for a wife to just love her husband. And I got two people shaking their heads. One's married, one's not. I'd love to interview you two right now, but I'm talking. Isn't it natural for them to love their husbands and their children? Well, not really. It's not natural. Okay? It's natural for them to use their husband and their children. And even so deceptively that may not, they might not even know it. Paul, well, we won't go Paul. We'll, we'll go Genesis. We'll go God through Moses. When, when the woman is cursed, this is key to your understanding of the New Testament, guys. When the woman is cursed, he says, your desire will be for your husband. And, and I remember be, being a guy reading that, being like, that is an awesome curse. <laughs> like that my wife would desire me. That, that's what I want, right? That doesn't sound like a curse. Did you ever read that and be like, how is that a curse? It's not what it means. The woman's desire is, is going to be, that, that word desire is also in the next chapter where Cain desires to kill his brother and, and sin is crouching at the door and desires to have you, but you must master it. That's what God says to, to Cain. It's crouching at the door and it, listen, it desires to have you. It desires to master you. The woman's curse is she's going to want to take the man's role in the home. I want to lead. I want to take the God-given role that God gave to men, and I want to take over the home. That's what I want. That's the curse. And since God made men to leave, here's lead, not leave. Unfortunately, you would think that's what God gave men for, to leave. Yeah, but that's not it. It's to lead. So God said, men, you are to lead. Women, you are to lovingly submit. Now I know that's mass. That's like throwing a grenade into our culture and with the pin pulled. But listen, here's how these men who are to be submitted to and followed should act. They should act like Jesus. So Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Jesus give himself up for the church? Died. Listen, so the ideal husband who's walking by the Spirit dies for his wife. Not in the sense that Jesus did, but dies daily. That's, I'm not going to say it's harder because I'm not going to say what we do is harder than what Jesus did. But that's hard to die every day to love your wife. Right, men? Her desires before yours. Her needs before yours. Her will, if reasonable, before yours. You die for her daily. Listen, I don't know of a woman who wouldn't want to submit to that. A man who's going to die for her and wants to and is, not the concept, but the reality. That's what God, that's what he designed. Rather, it's the other way around. Most men are like, serve me. Get under my foot. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a man who will love his wife like Christ loved the church, and then wives submit to their husbands, not try to take over. But listen, if a man's doing what he's supposed to do, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the woman can easily slide into that submitting. to Who wouldn't want to submit to someone who died for them? Hello, Christ in the church. We're the bride. We're supposed to submit to Jesus. 
he died for us. You see the picture, you see the connection. That's why Paul then said right after that verse, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. We as the church, the female, uh, Tim Keller says there's a lot of gender bending in the New Testament. It's true. So even though we're men, we are the bride of Christ and we submit to Christ. Why? Because he died for us. It's out of love for him. So, wives are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their wives and their children. Children are hard to love. Anyone with children, is it amen? I mean, and I could go on a rant here because mine's three and a half. All I'll say is there's a lot of prayer that goes on, nonverbal, in raising my child. Because inside, I want to freak out. And if that's me, what's going on in my wife? She's with her five times more than I am. So, so we, 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 would, we would be okay if Paul said, wives, don't kill your children. <laughs> That'd be a reasonable command. Because you'd be like, I just want to kill them sometimes, right? Rather, he says, train them. Train them to love their wives and their children. Now, now here, here's, here's what this might look like. If we're lazy, and this is, this is to the men too, so I'm talking to the ladies, but I'm talking to the men. If we're lazy fathers, if we're ladies, not ladies, if we're lazy ladies, the disobedience could be met with, I'm tired. Like, I just want to lay here. I just want to keep reading my book. I don't want to, I don't want to discipline. I don't want to get into this right now. I don't want to ruin this. I don't want to have to leave this store right now because of punishment. I don't want to... And so, because it's difficult and a hard thing to do, we just say, I'll let it slide. When the loving thing to do is actually to discipline. Do you ever think of that? When children are not disciplined correctly by their parents, they were made for that, by the way. They were made to have bounds and rules and offense. Children thrive with a fence around them, believe it or not. Children do not thrive when they're thrown out into the wide world with total autonomy and no rules. They end up in prison. Or dead. Worse. But when there's a loving fence, I mean, sociologists who aren't Christians will tell you the most loving and safe environment for children is a mother and a father who are stayed connected and who are, um, there's a security in the home. Who disciplined them? That's non-Christian. Is there a reason? Well, because that's the design of God. They're finding out what God put into the moral fabric of the universe, and they're just discovering it by all their studies and tests and polls. But we knew it all along. Not me personally, but the Bible. Christians who read the Bible and believe it. We knew that was the case all along. That the most safe environment, the most healthy environment for children is two parents who love each other and there's a relatively stable relationship. It's not that parents don't fight. Of course they fight. When two sinners get together in close proximity for more than an hour, there's going to be some kind of tussle. Right? And so, ladies, Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, older ladies, teach the younger ones to love their husbands and their children. And loving sometimes is the hardest thing to do, not the easy thing. 
I'm going to start plowing through the rest of this. Teach them to be pure, verse 5. Pure in conduct and in speech. And and the little note I made here um, was was just Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. And, and to be honest, I don't even really go on Facebook unless I'm communicating within the church and, and private messaging some of you. And the reason is because I'm like, oh, I can't believe you said that. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe you put that on there. Oh, my God. Because you're saying to the world the opposite of what Paul's saying here, pure. And so we could, we could take Jesus' words and contextualize them when he said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks from Facebook. Your heart speaks. Seriously. Because they're your words. You just type them. And it's revealing the who you are on the inside. And I've seen some stuff from people who I thought were different people. And I read their posts and I'm like, they're not who I thought they were. I mean, your words reveal your heart. And the heart is the core of your being. It's your motivational structure. It's the who you are. And so your words show us who you are, whether they're typed or whether they're verbalized. And so my, my point is, in all this, I know this is, this is hitting some of you, but, but that's the point. Pure. Like, that's who we're supposed to be. And there's always room to turn. There's always room to make a change. That's, Martin Luther said that the, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. A friend from the church asked me two weeks ago, he said, so is there a one-time repentance or is this a thing we do all the time? And, and I, said, I said, bro, have you ever read uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses? He, he saw the movie, 2003 version. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. It's awesome. Dr. Octopus from Spider-Man is the main villain. <laughs> Tetzel, it's awesome. I'm serious. So the first of the 95 Theses is the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Repentance just means to change your thinking, to change the way you're going, and to turn around. So right now, there could be repentance. Right now. Isn't that awesome? You get another chance right now. So so when you go to type later, there's an opportunity right there. You can imagine Luther with that long sheet of paper and that nail. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Okay? All right. Pure. What else? Working at home. Now, some, some skeptics and some enemies of the Bible like to take this working at home and they like to say, see, the Bible is oppressive of women. And that's not what it's saying. The Bible never oppresses women. When women get under the authority of the Scripture and men also get under the authority of Scripture, guess who flourishes? Men and women. <laughs> working from the home means this. Remember the context. Wives loving their husband and children. That means they're married and have children. And so if they're in that context, their best place to thrive is in the home with the husband and the children. Now, I know they're single moms. And, we, and the reason that this can't work all the time is because of sin. It's because of the curse. It, if everything was in perfect order, we would be living in perfect order. But we live in a fallen world. So the ideal situation is that the woman could be at home with their children who are young and loving their husband who is dying for her. What this does not say is women can't work outside the home. It doesn't say that, does it? What it says is let them be at home with their children and work at home. That means you could have a home business. 
That means you could manage from home. I know tons of women who work from home. Okay? But it doesn't exclude working out of the home. It just says, this is the best environment. This is the best situation. And again, back to that study I talked about earlier. Remember? Okay. Be submissive to their own husbands. This sounds oppressive to women as well, but let's tear it up. Submissive to who? Their own husbands. Not all men. (laughs) If my daughter was to submit to all men, she wouldn't leave the house. You know who my daughter's supposed to submit to right now? Me as her father, because I'm the head of the home. And until she leaves my care and I hand her hand over to her husband, that's when she's supposed to stop submitting to me and start submitting to him and no one else. So ladies, this is for your protection, not for your oppression. What it's not saying is submit to all men. No, God forbid. You're you're not submitting to your boyfriends. You're not submitting to your boss in in the bad way, okay? There's other passages that talk about if you have a job, submitting to your employer. We're talking about as an authority over you, okay? Your husband is for your protection, and your submission to your husband is for your protection. But listen, if you're not married, you're, you're not submitting to all the men. Please don't read that into this. And again, it's the husband who is dying for his wife. And then Peter addresses and Paul addresses those who have unbelieving husbands. He actually says that by you submitting to him, even though he's a jerk, God might use that to save him. Even though he's an unbelieving turd. Okay? God might use your godly submission, obviously never to sin, to save him. It's amazing. Okay, I put, uh, I wrote here, not submissive to men in general, but to husbands. What a beautiful marriage that a husband is daily dying for his wife and the wife is submitting to her husband's godly leadership. What a beautiful, flourishing environment. It's like a greenhouse for delicious berries that just produce these massive, powerfully healthy fruits for us to eat. It's awesome. Why? Why for all this? Uh, That the word of God may not be reviled. Okay? Reviled means this. Here's the Greek word. Blasphemio. What does that sound like? Yeah. So that God's word, so that the gospel, so that the truth might not be spoken evil of or defamed or blasphemed. In other words, if we say we're Christians and we say that we're living like this and we do the opposite of these things, the word of God is going to be spoken evil of. Because, listen, even everybody knows, Christian or not, your actions speak louder than your words. Okay? So our actions will often betray what we say we believe. You can just open that door and let her downstairs, bro. Thank you. I'm done after this. Our actions will always, even as Christians, betray what we say we believe. Amen? Because we're sinners. But listen... There is one, there's one who stood in a crowd of people, his most hostile enemies, in John 8, 46, and says, I imagine with his hands out, who of you can convict me of sin? 
If I did that, even in this room, some of you don't even know me. <laughs> You'd be like, bro, you just sinned five minutes ago. Like, I've been listening to you for 45 minutes. If I stood in a crowd of people who were my hostile enemies, and I said, who of you can convict me of sin? I'd be convicted. Jesus stands in a crowd of hostile enemies and says, looks them all in the eye, and says, who of you can convict me of sin? And it sounded just like this. But did you know that that no conviction of sin is given to you and to me when we trust in Jesus? So that Romans 8.1 can say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So though we look at these kind of lists and we're like, man, I'm a failure. Yeah, amen. Jesus isn't. And he lived perfectly in your place. And that's given to you as a gift. So that in Christ, you fulfilled all of this. And by the power of his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, you can begin to live some of this stuff out. Isn't that awesome? And so we cannot live up to these massive standards. We fail and we run to Jesus. That's the gospel. That's repentance. I'm a failure. Run to Jesus. Don't run away from him. You're tempted to run away from him. But listen, run to him. He has open arms and a smile. He said, I didn't come for healthy people. I came for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. It's awesome. Right in, When we were at our worst, he said, I choose you. You're going to be mine. And I'm going to be yours. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to take on all your filth, all of your failure, all your guilt, all your shame. I'm going to receive it to myself, and I'm going to take the punishment, and I'm going to give you all my perfection so that, listen, in a sense, you can then stand in front of a crowd of your hostile enemies and say, who of you can convict me of sin? And because you're hidden in Christ, sounds like this. <laughs>